Well, what a joy it is to gather with the household of God. This morning, we come back to our study of the book of Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount, and particularly in verses 13 through 16, with Jesus' admonition for us to be salt and light. This is a, a passage dealing most explicitly with influence, the power of influence. We are we know about influence. There's been studies that have, done, have been done about influence, word of mouth influence, product endorsements. In fact, the whole enterprise of social media was largely built on the idea of influence, the idea that you are most likely to buy products or services if it's being recommended by someone that you know, someone within your network rather than some distant spokesperson or even celebrity. Influence is important. It's important in the product realm. It's important in the marketing realm. It's all the more important, though, in the spiritual realm, or we might even say the moral realm, the impact that you have on those around you is unquestionable. And that's really what Jesus is talking about in our passage this morning, Matthew five thirteen. He's doing it with the imagery of salt and light. What he's talking about is the influence you have on society, particularly by living a life and believing in things which are distinct, that set you apart. And you can see this really in the parallel statements he makes in verse 13 and 14. First of all, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. In both of those statements, earth and world refer to the same thing. It's the system or the practices or the standards that are associated with secular society around you. All of that that goes on around us that operates apart, we might say, from the demands and the requirements and the acknowledgement of God. All of its ideologies, all of its principles, all of its assumptions, all of its beliefs, all of its opinions that you encounter every day, all of them formulated essentially with no consideration for God, no consideration for His Word. That is the world. It encompasses all of its, not only thoughts, but its behavior, its actions, its movements, its attitudes, all of that flowing out of its beliefs and ideologies. This is the world that Jesus has in mind. This is the earth that he's speaking of. And it's not the physical world, the physical universe, which we're told is created by God. It was declared to be good on the day in which he created it. It still is telling of the glories and the wonders of God, uh, speaking forth day into day and night into night, the psalmist says, about his majesties. It's still something that we gaze at and observe and we see the majesty of God, we wonder at His creation. It's not even the physical people that God has created who are to be objects of love and compassion for us. It's none of that. This world and this earth that He's talking about is the system of ideas. All of that that's formulated outside of God's decrees, outside of God's revelation, everything that drives people and systems of the world. It is 
To coin a phrase from Paul, it is the world over which Satan is the God, the God of this world, as he calls him in 2 Corinthians 4. It's everything that Satan is governing. And it's within that realm that you and I enter every day, and it's within that realm that you and I are called by this passage and others to have a distinct influence. Now, to understand that, we need to understand the images that Jesus is using here. It's salt and light, because each one of them gives us, I think, particular insight into the kind of influence that Jesus wants us to have, and specifically how we're to do that. First of all, by by living lives that purify society around us, and second of all, by pointing people to Christ. First of all, we can look at that purifying effect as he speaks about it in verse 13, a life that purifies society. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says in verse 13 that you are the salt of the earth, the salt of the earth. Now, just like in our own times, in ancient times, salt was used for a number of different purposes. And you could read articles and commentaries have been dedicated to this subject through the years, outlining all of those. There's a lot of debate about exactly which one of those functions this is uh, referring to as Jesus draws this analogy. Most people recognize, however, the primary two functions of salt both in the modern world and the ancient world, was first of all for seasoning and second of all for preserving. And while both of those have been proposed, I think it's pretty obvious that Jesus in this analogy is talking about salt as a preservative, primarily because of the parallel with light. The way in which we're salt in the world is parallel to the way that we're salt on the earth is parallel to the way that we're light in the world. Both of them have to do with remediating some destructive or corrosive or dangerous effects that are taking place around us in the world and in society. In other words, Jesus, when he uses this, he's not simply saying that we need to sort of add flavor to the world around us. We're not all about spicing up life. That may happen, may not happen, but that's not the main point. He's talking about salt in its preventative and preservative effects. People in the ancient world, of course, didn't have deep freezes. They didn't have refrigerators. And so they needed salt because food would spoil quickly, especially meats. But they could cure their meat as well as their other food and prevent the spoilage. Salt naturally kills bacteria that causes spoilage. And so in the same way, Jesus is telling you that you are to have a preserving, a purifying effect on the people, on the society, on the systems around you, a correcting effect, a safeguarding effect on the ethical and moral decay that is all around us. Or to preserve society, in other words, from sliding further and further into corruption. Now, all of that assumes a major point, a major idea. And that is the fact that society is corrupt. That it is on a decaying trajectory. That it is sliding. 
that left to its own, just like a natural piece of meat on the sidewalk, it will decay. It will grow putrid apart from the influence of believers. And this isn't hidden. It's found all over the Scripture. Jesus Himself talks about it. John 7, 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil, he says. Later on in 1 John, John says, all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with all its desires. So he's categorical. Everything that's in the world that doesn't come from the Father, every bit of it is passing away. It's decaying. It's it's being brought to destruction. This is the biblical worldview. This is the truth about society around you. John 3.19, he says, Light came into the world through Jesus and people loved darkness rather than light because their works were evil. Colossians 1.21, Paul describes the, the world around us as being alienated, hostile in their minds toward God, doing evil deeds, he says. This is why James tells us in James 4.4 that friendship with, with, with the world is enmity with God. Enmity. So you have this way of thinking that's presented in the Scripture. You have this biblical view of society and life that you and I are called on to understand that we're, that we're presented with over and over as a metric by which we can understand the world that we live in, a way in which we can discern everything going on around us. And all of this because, as Jesus says in John 16... All of it arises out of one basic reason. The world doesn't know God. It doesn't know Christ. This is the fundamental reason for its corruption. And because of that reason, they will continue to slide into further and further corruption, further and further dismay until they, until they reach the point where they receive the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ or they reach the judgment, one or the other They're going to continue the slide. The whole system, every thought, every argument, every ideology that hasn't been taken captive in obedience to Christ, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, every one of them, every one of those ideologies and arguments and thoughts and systems and all of that, all of them are corrupt. Now, you may not like to think about the world that way. You might think, well, that's an overly pessimistic way of looking at the world. I, I tend to be a glass half full kind of a person. I'm optimistic. I'm enthusiastic about this or that. I, I'm, I'm encouraged by this development. I'm encouraged by that leader. I like this particular group or whatever it might be. You may not like to think of the world this way. It might sound too bleak or too depressing for you. But until you accept this view of the world as described in Scripture, you will never be able to be salt. You can't do it. Because friendship with the world is enmity with God. 
fundamental to what Jesus is saying here, fundamental to what he's saying here, is the acceptance that everything that arises from the world does not arise from the Father. And therefore, everything that arises in the world is corruption. When Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, he's not saying that you're just one of several preservatives that God has sprinkled throughout the world and throughout the earth that he's constantly using to preserve the earth. He uses the definite article, which is which is uh, somewhat more emphatic in the Greek language than it is in even English. You are the salt. You're not one of many. You are the salt. In fact, even the, um, even the you here is in the emphatic position. You, you as believers, you are the salt. You are the preservative. You are the force that God has established in the world. There are no others. You and you alone. God didn't send multiple options. He hasn't appointed other means. He has appointed His believers. Not His believers plus schools and hospitals and charities and other organizations. He's appointed you as the salt, as the preservative. You may not like that. You may not like it that the world would see that. You may not like it that when you enter into a room and enter into conversation, that the people immediately change their behavior. You may not like it that when you enter into a group of people, people drop their filthy language or they start apologizing if they let a curse word slip. You may not like it. It it may make you feel awkward when people look at you as different. You may want to do everything that you can to shed that, that kind of persona. But you have to understand that is the role that God has prescribed for you. You are supposed to be a preservative. He's called you to be different. He's called you to be salt and to stem the tide of corruption around you. That's the purpose for which God's appointed you and left you in this world. Of course, all of this assumes that you haven't lost your saltiness. As he says here, You're the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, actually the word taste isn't in the Greek text, Uh, the word is morino, from which we get moron, basically means something devoid or devoid of meaning, devoid of of a state, Not, not any specific reference to taste. What he's saying is that if salt becomes devoid or deficient or barren of its inherent qualities. Now, you might ask, how does that happen? I mean, I thought salt was a stable compound. We all learned in chemistry, if we took chemistry, we all learned that sodium chloride is a stable compound. 
It's not apt to change. And so sodium chloride will never lose its saltiness or whether it's its salty taste or its preservative effects, it'll always have its inherent qualities, which is, of course, true. But in the ancient world, people didn't have the complex processes of refining salt the way that we do today. The best that they could do was to simply chisel salt out of salt mines or hillsides and to maybe sift it down as fine as they could get, but it was always inevitably mixed with other minerals and deposits and silt. And so their sodium chloride was mixed with all this other stuff. It was, we might say, adulterated with all this other stuff that might have looked like salt. They would have picked out everything that was obviously not some sort of white substance, but there was still embedded in their salt all kinds of other filaments. And among all those particles and all the dust and all the silt and all that stuff, sodium chloride was actually the most soluble substance. And so consequently, it could be, in many cases, washed away. It could even be evaporated with moisture into the air so that the only thing left was some sort of useless residue which, as Jesus says in verse 13, becomes good for nothing to be thrown out, but to be thrown out and trampled under the feet of men. So in the ancient world, salt could lose its saltiness, at least what they, what they visualized and saw as salt. It could lose its saltiness because it becomes adulterated, washed out, watered down, evaporated or whatever. It can lose its saltiness because all of these other deposits and silt that's around it basically dilute it, and so you have which, what to some people might appear to be a preservative agent, but it really has no real effects on that that you use or that which you try to cure it with. No real qualities, void, vacant of any kind of preserving effect. And Jesus is warning you about that. Beware lest your salt loses its saltiness. Lest your central elements that you have from God that are intended to fight against the corruption of the world, beware lest you become so mixed with the elements and the particles and the deposits of the world that are around you that that might appear to other people, maybe even to yourself, they might appear to have some sort of preserving effect, but they're not, because they're not the true salt that comes from God. You've been repackaged, rebundled with worldly values, with worldly ideas, with worldly perspectives. Jesus says, of course, You need to beware of this because he knew the temptation would come. He knew it would come for his followers. He knew it would come for you, the temptation to position yourself within the world where you embrace its ideals, its values, whatever it considers to be virtuous, whatever it considers to be precious, that you embrace all of that, that you conform to all of that, that you listen to all of that. 
And as we've said in the past weeks, it's not hard to figure out what those ideals and values and perspectives are. You just open up the newspaper or fire up your computer or you read your social media feed or you watch on TV. You find the top 20 or top 10 or whatever, the top list of all of its shows and its books or whatever's going on, whatever's trending on whatever your uh, particular source is, you can so easily find out what the world cherishes, what it values. You mix those things into your life, you might be sure to garner the approval of the world, but you'll have no effect on its corruption. Nothing to stop its decay. Because whether you want to admit it or not, no matter how virtuous it sounds, the world is decaying. No matter how how erudite its, its professors are, no matter how sophisticated its books sound, no matter how glossy its magazines are, no matter how well choreographed are its musicals, no matter how picturesque are its movies. It's all a facade. Behind it is corruption. And so Jesus is warning us, you need to make sure that you stay salty. Not in the modern sense, we use salty to talk about people who are grumpy or angry or upset or callous or whatever it might be. But what Jesus means is you need to make sure that you remain distinct in your Christian character and your Christian ideals. The foundation of your biblical worldview, your sense of God's providence, your trust in His goodness and righteousness and justice, your sense of God's truth above all other truth, you need to cling to those things. Or more immediately, your commitment to the kind of lifestyle He's already described in the, in the Beatitudes. Instead of being self-confident, you're poor in spirit. Instead of rejoicing in sin, you mourn. Instead of being self-centered, you're meek. Instead of being morally self-satisfied, you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Instead of being indifferent, you're merciful. Instead of being duplicitous, you're pure in heart. Instead of being divisive, you're peacemakers. Instead of being pleasure seekers, you're persecuted. You're distinct from the world, from its ideals, from his behavior. Now Jesus drives us home with a second image here in verse 14. You're also the light of the world. And while the image of salt emphasizes, we might say, the, the purifying effect on society, this image emphasize, emphasizes a life that points people to God. He says in verse 14, you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor can people light a lamp or nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. 
So here Jesus is making another simple statement about our impact on the world and society. It's parallel with what he just said about being salt of the earth, but with a different image and a different emphasis. This one, the image of light, which in many cases, light refers to truth. But in this situation, we see very clearly down in verse 16, he's referring to your works. He says that people would see your good works. So when he speaks here about light, he has in mind the shining of your conduct and your behavior and how visible it is to the world. And again, once again, just as salt assumes a corruption of a society around you, this obviously assumes the darkness of the world around you. It assumes a particular view of the world that is darkened, not only in its behavior, but darkened in its, uh, in its uh, mind. The, the world is darkened both inside and outside. Their heart and mind, as Paul says in Ephesians 4.17, are darkened and callous against God, but that leads externally to darkened behavior. We already quoted from John 3.19, this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And everyone who does wicked things hates the light and doesn't come to the light lest his works should be exposed. The world doesn't want to be exposed. It wants the darkness to carry out its evil deeds, to pursue its selfish goals, to indulge its flesh. Again, this is not the view that the world has of itself. It's not the view that you even perhaps want to adopt. You might be fascinated with the world. You might be fascinated with its leaders, with its voices, with its ideals, with its books. But the Bible declares that it's darkness. Philippians 2.15 says that you are to be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. That view of the world, twisted and crooked, is not particular to Paul's century. It isn't something that happened just because of Roman domination. I mean, all the way back in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 6, we're told that God looked on the world that he had made and the thoughts and intents of men were constantly on evil. Genesis 6. And none of that is affected by the passage of time. It isn't proved with the development of of democracy or the improvements in education. The world might celebrate its enlightenment. It may, it may believe it's made all these advances in knowledge. It might trumpet its achievements in mechanics and medicine or discoveries in science and technology. But for all of those advances, in all of those, we might say, hard sciences... The world has simply expanded its reach of misery and greed and hatred and strife. As it increases in knowledge, it increases in its destructive power. It hasn't improved on its society at all. As knowledge increases, morals degenerate. 
Technology advances, but it only increases the spread of immorality. Science makes discoveries, but the world in turn uses it to twist and even destroy God's creation. The world can't help itself. It's corrupted from the inside out, and so it grows, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, it grows worse and worse because it has no inherent capacity for good. It does not have inherent capacity for good. Everything that's in the world, as John says, is not from the Father. Advances in technology have not restrained corruption. It's expanded it. It's made corruption more available to a wider range of people at a greater exposure in their age in a shorter amount of time than ever in history. It's not the world's view of itself. The world's view of itself is that it's enlightened. The world's view of itself is that it's headed towards progress, that it has some utopia just over the horizon that they have the answers, that they're the ones whose eyes have been opened. They're the ones who are awakened. God gives a different verdict. And so again, if, if you do not accept this biblical worldview, you are incapable of shining the light. If you do not accept this biblical worldview, you are incapable of fulfilling what Jesus says here. As he says in Luke 11.35, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. Be careful lest the light in you be darkness. It's such a sad thing to see a Christian go on a crusade to publish abroad everything that they've learned, not from God, but from the world. That everything they think that they're doing that is virtuous has no foundation in the Scripture, but is actually something from the world. Be careful lest you embrace all the darkness that's around you and begin to imbibe the patterns and the behaviors and the attitudes of the world. You begin to reflect all of that. You think that you're shining the light. Be careful, he says, lest the light in you is actually darkness. To shine as lights, the first thing you have to do is rid yourself of the darkness. To shine as lights, the first thing you have to do is you have to embrace the source of light. If you embrace the darkness, you have nothing to shine. The world can do that well enough on its own. You have nothing to enlighten the world. You have nothing to offer if you're just simply imbibing and reproducing and regurgitating what the world is already feeding itself. Again, this is critical. Just like salt is fundamentally different from the bacteria and the corruption and even the host that it is put into in order to cure, light is fundamentally different than darkness. And you cannot enlighten a room with more darkness. 
You can only enlighten a room if you bring in something totally different. You bring in the light. And the light comes from Christ. So instead of buying into the world's image of itself, you and I, Jesus says, are to shine distinctly. In fact, once again here, he uses the definite article and the emphatic you. You are the light. You are the light of the world. He says to his disciples over in the book of John, as long as I am the world, I am in the world, I am the light. But now he has he has departed and left that task to his people. You are the light in the midst of all this darkness. You and you alone, and there is no other. Charles Quarles wrote 10 years ago in his book on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Jesus' emphasis on his disciples' unique ability to purify the world suggests that they do so by means other than mere moral protest, political involvement, social activism. Any person of any faith can engage in those activities. If these were the strategies to transform society that Jesus had in mind, he could not have said that his disciples were the, that is, the one and only salt of the earth and light of the world. The only way you can be light, the only way you can be salt is to offer what you and you alone as a follower of Christ have to give. Your role is different. Your message is different. Your lifestyle, your interaction, your speech, your conduct, it ought to be different. You're the light of the world, Jesus says. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. That's a statement of fact. In the ancient world, cities were, were visible from miles away, day or night. They were normally positioned on high ground or on a hill in order to give it security against invasion. But even at night, even in the age before electricity, they were visible. Most of the buildings in the ancient Near East were built out of limestone rock or covered in limestone plaster. If you've ever visited the Near East, you see that, the sort of the brightness of all the buildings and the hills, so that even primitive torches and candlelights that illumine their cities at night would reflect off the limestone and create a hue for miles around. So Jesus is just pointing out that when your light shines, it's going to be noticeable. It's going to be visible. It's going to stand out. It's going to be identifiable. It's going to be recognized by everyone around you as different. Different from what they're seeing everywhere else. Maybe different from what they're hearing everywhere else. It's going to be recognizable. And he adds in verse 15 that people do not light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. That's the purpose of the light. The reason God has placed you here, or we might say the reason God has left you here, is so that your life could shine and point people uniquely to Him. It makes absolutely no sense to have a light and then hide it. To light it and then put it under a basket. In other words, Jesus is saying, do not pretend to be something that you're not. 
If you're a believer, don't pretend to be a part of the world. If you're light, don't pretend to be darkness. This is God's design for you. Shine as light. As he says in verse 16, let your light shine before others. He doesn't ask you to light your light. He's already done that. He didn't ask you to create the light. He's already done that. He's the one that's regenerated your heart and filled your mind with truth. He's the one who's put the Holy Spirit within you, made you a new creature. The Lord's already done all of that. All you do now is let your light shine. You let it shine within your household. You let it shine within your workplace, within your school, within your community or whatever it might be, you let it shine. Even if the darkness flees away, even if that means your friends and associates shun you, because they probably will. In fact, it's ironic. Jesus says here, they'll see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. He says that right after, back in verse 10, he talked about persecution. He already talked about how the world is going to persecute you. So the very ones who, who have uh, persecuted you may be the very ones who in the end glorify God because of your deeds. There will be persecution. You may be tempted to hide your light under a basket. You may be tempted to dilute your salt so it doesn't burn so bad. You might be attempted to take a position in the world. In fact, many Christians assume that's actually the way to draw people to God, meet the world on their terms, embrace their agenda, carry their banner, take on their markings. But Jesus says just the opposite. Shine as lights. They'll see your works and glorify your Father. I remember when I gave my heart to Christ at the age of 17, the summer before my senior year of high school back in 1989. I began school that fall and uh, met up with all my old friends as we gathered around for a football season and all of our other events where we we were together, and they immediately noticed that I was different. Something had changed about me. They started to refer to me as the righteous man or the holy boy. They joked about how they had to behave when I was around. Eventually, they all started to leave. I'd sit at a lunch table, I remember. No one else would sit around me. I distinctly remember by the end of my first semester in my senior year, I was eating lunch with, with the office staff because none of my fellow students would sit with me anymore. I was like the plague. I understood social distancing before it was a thing. <laughs> but I was stunned, I remember, at the end of my year when my classmates were voting on various honors. They voted to give me the highest award the school had to give. 
Few of them wanted to hang around me. Not many of them wanted to be my friends. But I assume they recognized the work of God in me. And they were giving glory to him. It's a pathway God calls us to sometimes. Peter says, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Some translations say you're a peculiar people. So that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. If you're here this morning and you you see Christians and you can't deny that they're different. They're different than you. There's something in them. You know it's there. You've seen it. It has been it has been something that at times annoys you because you love the darkness rather than the light. But it's also something you cannot deny. The joy and the happiness, the peace that they have with God. It isn't because of anything inherent in us. It's because of the work of God. He called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. He can call you. He can transform you. And make you a creature. For his glory. For your blessing. And an instrument to his praise. Father, we're so grateful for this reminder. We need it. We need to be salt. We need to be light. Help us to understand how to do that. Your word gives us so much direction. It is a light to our feet and a lamp to our path. Lord, I pray that we would be beholden then to it, that we would conform our minds to it, be renewed in our thinking day after day. So that the words of our lips, the meditation of our heart, and all that we do would be to your praise, honor, and glory. Lord, help us to have that purifying influence, that enlightening presence on the world around us. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.